As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels, presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Ido Saris. It is Monday, August 30th. On this episode, we will talk about Vlad Jr. and some potential adjustments that teams have made while uh, trying to pitch to him over the course of the season. That kind of dovetails with some questions about regression overall, so we'll get into that. We will talk about an idea for improving reach rate or O-swing percentage, as we've talked about that stat quite a bit on this show over the course of the last year or so. We'll get into some late-season decision-making now that we're approaching the final month of the fantasy baseball season, and we're going to dust off beer of the month. It's time, you know? It's the end of the month. we got to get a beer of the month selection in there, so lots of ground to cover, and uh, I want to start just going right at it with the Vlad Jr. question. This came from an email that Nick sent us, and he writes, any insight on how a player starts so hot for months and then becomes cold, other than a player regresses, what can his slower streak be attributed to? Ground ball rate for Vlad Jr. is higher, and he's been colder in Toronto than in Florida and Buffalo, but why? Are pitchers pitching to him differently? Is the change of park that big of a deal? Is it fatigue? What are the chances he can have a bounce back September? And the same goes for Otani, but he's pitching while hitting and still seems to be hitting for power and stealing bases. So, Obviously, a lot more appeal here than just Vlad Jr. and Otani, but is this just your typical sort of regression case? And within regression, we're always talking about this being a game of adjustments, right? Pitchers are going to try and do different things to you if you're having a level of success like what we saw from both Vlad Jr. and Otani throughout the first half. Yeah, I mean, part part of it was the park, I think. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that he's gone colder in Toronto, um, you know, I think that the the park they were playing with in in Dunedin was very hitter friendly. Uh, so I think that was part of it. Like he just was in a great hitter friendly park. Um, I also think that you know there's something that Marcus Semyon was telling me about becoming a, a high fastball hitter. He said that by it was an adjustment he made. He said he made it against a oldest Chapman. He said that. He started targeting the top half of the ball on four seamers because they have that ride. And that allowed him to hit the ball flush, 
hit for for power. Once you can hit the high fastball, that's what pitchers are trying to do these days. Uh, in large part, is do the high fastball with the low breaking ball. Adrian Beltre said that the high fastball makes if you start targeting the high fastball, the low breaking ball looks like crap because it looks like it's coming off a totally different plane. It's going totally different direction. Looks like it's further away. Um, and so then you make yourself better at both pitches. So I think that's sort of what happened with Vlad, uh, because I see uh, improved slugging percentages on the four seam high in the zone uh, from last year to this year. Um, and then I see a, an adjustment from pitchers where they have now started throwing him low four seams. And uh, I think that's something you can see from Walker Bueller is that a low four seam can be effective if you are facing uh, hitters that have that sort of high four seam strategy. Uh, because a low four seam will be will be taken for a called strike. Then if you get them swinging at the low four seam, then you can break out the low breaking balls and they swing over the top of the breaking balls again. So uh, that's one thing that uh, some pitchers can fall into is being too uh, too obvious with their strategies. Just it's all high four four seams. They never throw a low four seam. Uh, you kind of have to start mixing it up that way too. Otherwise, people will just uh, put you in a box. So I, I, I think that's a, uh, it's such a general story and it's such a, um, a thing that could happen to anybody that uh, I think that uh, it's not something like that means, oh, we're going to overvalue Vlad Guerrero and Jr. in drafts next year and he's been figured out and blah, blah, blah. I think it's just, uh, I think it's just part of, the, part of the, the sort of back and forth that happens in baseball. Yeah, the normal ebbs and flows of a season. I think we also, as much as we know that a level like what Vlad Jr. was doing in the first half, that 332, 430, 658 line, like we want to believe that he can do that over a full season. There's something about seeing that for an entire year that would just uh, amaze all of us. So in our heads, we're like, well, he's not going to regress that much. And his second half is still good. A 270, 356, 447 line. Obviously, that slugging number especially is well below where we'd expect him to be. Uh, but it's sort of just one of these things where it, you you can't take any player's first half and just assume that it's going to be that good on or that bad for. too. Yeah, the on pace for thing never ever it, it just doesn't it doesn't work like that. And I, I think with Vlad Jr. There will always be that little kernel of doubt when the ground ball rate soars, but I think the way you're describing how he would have been attacking high fastballs does give you a little bit of a, an understanding of how he might be hitting the top of the ball a little more often right now as pitchers have changed where they're locating fastballs against him. Uh, it's interesting, too, that you brought up Bueller just for a minute. It's kind of a, a little side path because he was among the big spin losers you know, since the crackdown back in June. And I was trying to figure out, like, how has he been so effective? But yeah, it sounds like a, a completely different location strategy might be a big part of how he's been able to adjust to not having uh, the same effectiveness of the high fastball that he previously had. Yeah, he also throws wicked hard, so <laughs> that, <laughs> that helps. Um, but, uh, you know, there was, he, he once told me something that interesting that I haven't super verified yet. Um, but he said that the Dodgers told him that over 94 miles per hour um, spin means less because uh, there's only so much ride you'll get. I think it has to do with like time to the plate, you know, 
that's so something about like moving the mound back. Uh, you actually might be able to get more ride out of your fastballs because there's more more time uh, for it to differentiate. Because if you think about it, like if you're looking on on YouTube, like the whole idea of ride is that like this is what your brain expects the ball is going to do, and instead it does this. You know, and so the difference between what your brain expects it to do and what it actually does, if you give it more space and move the mound back, will be larger. Right. And you'll have this unintended consequence of moving the mound back and making dominant high spin, high velocity pitchers actually more effective by changing that variable. Yeah. Good luck uh, enforcing the sticky strategy then if that's what they realize. And and also uh, the early numbers out of the league are interesting in that strikeout rate hasn't really gone down. Um, and they're all trying to figure that that bit out. But um, yeah, I think that would be terrible if we move the mound back and uh, got more strikeouts for it. I, I, talk, I talk about this dystopian nightmare where we move the mound back and we put in uh, robo lumps and the moving the mound back uh, because of what I'm talking about in terms of giving the, the ball more time to move, uh, moving the mound back could incentivize pitchers to throw more breaking balls. You know what else would could incentivize pitchers to throw more breaking balls is the robo zone because the there's two pitch types that are called the least. Uh, right now that are called strikes correctly the least and that's the two seamer that comes back to the plate like a front door uh, or anything front door so that could be a breaking ball so breaking balls and two seamers that come back to the plate and the other is ones that uh, clip the bottom of the zone and like hit the ground or or get caught really close to the ground those two pitches are not caught a lot are not called strikes a lot and so you see my dystopian nightmare coming together here Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like every pitcher is Sergio Romo or Rich Hill. <laughs> well, Which you think I'm about cool. those guys. I like, I like, I like, kind of like watching those guys, but they don't have great command and they're always just trying to like nip the bottom of the zone with their, or the side of the zone with their breaking balls. And I don't know. I don't think I'd want that to be everything I watched. No, no, I don't think that would be the best uh, way to go about uh, adjusting things to make the game more watchable like that. that and I don't think like it would lead to a away. lot fewer strikeouts actually. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. But the other side of this too is, you know, I was thinking about well, who's crushing in the second half right now. Like this Vlad Jr. Otani, like first half, amazing players, guys that have cooled off a little bit. Who's turned it around? I think Juan Soto is near the top of that list. I mean, he looks like typical Juan Soto again, which I don't think is that much of a surprise. Like I, I think the, the track record he had, Entering the season for a player his age, it made all the sense in the world that he was going to start hitting. And I think he said the home run derby hiccup. got him back on track. Yeah, too. and a little bit of the whole injury hiccup in the beginning of the season where he had a shoulder thing. Yeah, so, so I, I think, think he's just totally just, healthy now. Yeah, yeah. So you see some correction going that way. You see guys like Austin Riley. He's been a little bit erratic this year for as good as he's been. It's been a full-on like massive step forward and breakout for him. But he's among the best players in the league in the second half of the season, 14 homers now in his last 41 games, driving in runs, scoring runs. I mean, no one's expecting him to hit over 300 in the long run. That's just never really been part of his profile. But I don't think there are any doubts about the power at this point. He's well on his way to like a mid-30s sort of home run total this season. And I wonder, is he the kind of player who is going to be 
overdrafted because of, of recency bias and, and because of some of these uh, these concerns that crop up, especially when the second half is the better of your two halves. I feel like a lot of times that's what drives value above where it should go. Yeah. I wanted to say, you know, oh, he really improved his reach rate, right? And 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 that is good news, but he improved it to league average, right? So I don't think I buy a 9% walk rate, really. Um, although league average is, what, 8.5? So not that far off. But but I just, uh, it's a little bit aggressive for me. I, and I could see a, an alternate reality where, like, you put the two worst parts of a season back to back and um and everyone has a completely different opinion of him. Yeah. I mean there was a stretch where it looked like he had cooled off to the point where he could lose playing time again. I think it was late first half. I want to say it was around June where Riley looked like one of those guys that the league had sort of figured out again. Obviously he's adjusted back and has become one of the Braves more consistent hitters and it's been huge for them given all the losses they've had um, but I, I just it's interesting a 643 ops in june where he had a five percent walk rate yeah and the power i mean geez he had the same number he's the same number of homers in the second half in 41 games as he had in the first half over 88 games so uh, i think there's going to be probably a little more hype on him than there probably should be just based on the shape of this season one thing i do like is just uh there's a consistent barrel ability right like that's been consistent all all three years he's had a barrel rate over 10 percent. so he hits the ball hard when he does he has that sound that's something we knew from the first time we heard his his batting practice in the afl what i do like about the beginning of this season was a an emphasis on not reaching making more contact, having better ABs that didn't always end up in power. So if you can marry those two together, you can have a legit breakout. He's 24, so you know he's not necessarily going to get worse when it comes to strikeout rate or walk rate. A lot of these things wouldn't necessarily get worse. In fact, athletically, he has two more years between him and, and when you start you know, thinking that things might start going downhill, or three years at least. So... Um, the one thing that I would say is like, if you don't bet on the average, if you buy him at like a 260 average next year and 30 plus homers, 35 homers, then I think you can you can still buy him. It's, but I think you're right. I think people are going to look at the average and think that's totally redoable. And I'm not, I'm not sure that is. How often do you look at projections this time of year for the rest of the season as maybe a way of getting a sneak preview of what the slash line might look like when the projection system updates for next year. Like, yeah, how different is that projection really going to be? Is it 268, 334, 490 for the bat X for the rest of the season? Within, I would guess, five points in average and maybe eight to 10 points in OBP, I would assume that's where the 2022 projection is going to come out. Yeah, uh, you know, I I I think that basically the the projections are just they're always rolling and updating, right? The only yeah. difference in the off season is they they stop getting new information, so they sort of freeze it at some point. But I don't think uh, I don't think there's going to be a huge difference. I, in fact, I think that's a great proxy for for next year's projections. And if he's treated like he's going to hit two eighty five, three fifty. 500 then you're probably overpaying for riley so it's a good way to get that sneak peek at the second half you're trying to get ahead on your planning for next season but thanks a lot for that question nick it's always fun to dig into regression 
trying to figure out how exactly it's happening. Because again, we, we know when things aren't right, when things are too good or too bad, we can generally look at projections and go, yeah, okay, this is going to track back this way. The underlying process by which it happens, that varies pretty wildly, I think, from player to player. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's get to this other question that came in from Ned. Uh, he wrote that while catching up on last week's podcast, Eno made the point about reach rate being the measuring tool for the effectiveness of a team's hitting coach. Thinking about reach rate, I wondered whether this play discipline stat could be refined similarly to how WOBA and WRC Plus attempt to rectify the inherent flaw and how OPS equally values slugging and on-base skills. What if we can use a combination of the location of a specific pitch with possibly its barrel percentage or maybe its expected run value to properly weight the value of laying off a pitch millimeters outside the zone versus a 55-footer and then sort by specific locations or radius from the strike zone to see who is an elite zone controller. Or is this something that a large sample size of a full season tends to null out? Would expect to see Juan Soto near the top of this if it became a thing. I think that's a, a great projection for someone who might be at the top. Thanks for listening, Ned. I think this is a great question. Like I, I just because the decision to swing at a pitch outside the zone, it's pretty vague. If you're swinging at a very competitive pitch that narrowly missed the zone, you probably should have swung at that pitch in in some ways because it's almost impossible to tell that it's not a strike. But if you are swinging at the 55-footer because you're just hacking wildly, those count as the exact same sort of result in terms of how just basic O-swing is calculated. Yeah, and I have a stat, and Juan Soto is number one. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, there's, a, there's a stat from, from Stats Reform called Discipline, Discipline Plus. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, and, uh, and the idea is um, they scout these hitters and uh, they look at where the hitters have traditionally been successful, and then they uh, map their swings uh, against those locations in which they've been successful. So they give them credit for swinging at pitches that are in those zones that they've been successful and not swinging at pitches where they haven't been successful. That's sort of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. And I I, I think it's interesting that Soto's first on that list. Who I mean, You have the list in front of you, so I was yeah. trying to think of who else do we consider to have really good plate discipline. Well, the other person you think is on here is on here. Freddie it, Freeman? Well, Trout. Um, I don't know if Trout's not on here because of... No, because of missed time this year. Something, but uh, I've got the list. Number two is Brandon Nimmo, dude. Oh, yeah, Nimmo, sure. Yeah. Number three is Dylan Moore, uh, which Whoa. might be a little surprising based on his strikeout rate. But I think 
I think he's like barely a major leaguer, and this is his skill. Hmm. You know what I mean? Um, he's kind Brandon, of toolsy, though. Yeah, I mean, he's yeah. I guess he steals some bases. It, but the the I okay. How about this? His contact ability is like a thirty. Yes. <laughs> and that and you would normally think that would create a major leaguer but because his discipline is an 80 and he has uh, a couple other skills like defense and speed uh that's why he's a major leaguer brandon belt is fourth andrew mccutcheon is fifth alex bregman is sixth jake fraley mm. uh, there we go two uh two mariners maybe they value that chris taylor uh yandy diaz max muncie is 10th Tommy Pham is 11th. Mark Canha, Joe Panic, Clint Frazier. I actually uh, bought a share of Clint Frazier because Clint Frazier is on this list and he's on the barrel list and he had a bad season. So that to me makes uh, gives makes him a, a buy low for me. I don't know that he'll be on the Yankees next year um, or I don't know exactly how how I don't. I don't foresee the future on where he he, he makes this value a good a, a good judgment for me. Like I'd hate to see him up and down on the Yankees next year. That would that would be a bad, bad move by me. But I do think he's a, a buy low. Yasmani Grandal, Joey Gallo, uh, talked to him about this a little bit, and he just said uh, it's just been ingrained in him. He just this that's just a skill he has. Buster Posey, Tyler Stevenson. Which is a good like sign that. for his ability going forward. Mookie Betts and Anthony Rendon. To, that's the top 20. That's a group, I mean, generally of players that are very good. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the less proven guys, the Dylan Moores, the Fraley's, obviously a little surprising to see them there. But uh, Fraley, I always liked him as a prospect. I think it was James Anderson's rankings that really tipped He's me off the him a few years of ago. He's for us a couple of times, I think. Yeah, at least once and, and probably maybe like Toro, maybe maybe a two-time Repeat. selection. <laughs> but he's weird because he's been old for the level. I think it's in part because of injuries, kind of an unusual path to the big leagues. And this is the first time he's ever really had a regular chance to play in the big leagues. This is something we've gone through with Edward Olivares this season. We go through this with a ton of guys that sort of get stuck in the, the in-between Maybe if, even if they're not quad A players, they're stuck in the up and down situation because they don't have a spot to call their own, and mm-hmm. team thinks that developing them by playing them every day is better than depth or whatever, or they just yeah. don't value them highly. Yeah. So now we're starting to get a look at it. It's like an eighteen point two percent walk rate. That's really good for a guy that you you know wouldn't be certain about as being a, a decent big league sort of player. He's showing power. He's showing speed. I don't know if he's done enough to prove that he belongs in the Mariners' plans, given the quality of the outfielders they have in that organization. But I think he's shown enough where if there's another team interested that trades for him, I think they're doing it with the intention of giving him another 400-plus plate appearances to see what happens. And I think it's kind of justified. Yeah, and I'm absolutely kicking myself because in that OBP dynasty that 20 team that was rejects. I had both Fraley and Toro on my bench forever, uh, just trying to nurse them to the big leagues and uh, just injuries or whatever reason ended up dropping them like right before they finally got their chance. <laughs> I'm just staring at them out of the field's roster. Like, and then I get offers, trade offers for that with them in it. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's oh. always great the player you dropped coming back into your inbox as a piece that someone else is trying to trade you that's what you want mm, uh, that aggravates me that made me angry 
so, and it shouldn't i mean sunk costs like whatever like you know he has his, he has the value he has now if i want him i should get him you know but there's a little part of me it's like no <laughs> so no. the other guy i want to ask you about from that list is just tyler stevenson and k rates under 20 percent walk rate is above 10 percent. that's been the case for him at just about every minor league stop i mean high a back in 2018 he was 21.8 percent with the k rate but still walked 10 percent of the time showed a bit of power he's shown some power already this season how high is the ceiling i mean i think if he hits the ball in the air a little bit more i could talk myself into a 20 plus home run season from him at some point in the not so distant future it's just going to take the reds giving him a larger share of the playing time and giving tucker barnhart a bit less yeah i you it's funny you look at this guy and he's got this five percent barrel rate and you say okay well maybe he's just not going to be a power guy that's what the barrel is telling you uh but and then the max EV 1066 uh, is not standout. However, he has a really nice home park, right? And the ground ball rate, if you look at his ground ball rates in the minors, this year is the outlier. Yeah. And uh, Barnhart's contract is a club option for 2022. I mean, they might like the way he handles the staff well enough to bring him back and, and keep those two together. But I could just see that playing time shifting more in Stevenson's favor because there's a lot in this profile to like. Yeah, and you know they've been cheap in weird ways before, where they you know uh, let they didn't sign a shortstop. <laughs> nope, uh, it didn't seem to be hurting them too bad. They're doing well, but they've been cheap in weird ways where they could just decide, let's go cheap there. We'll just have some organizational type backup uh, and give Tyler the the reins. So I, yeah, and already he's going to get close to 400 plate appearances this year anyway. Um, because he's played some first base too. Yeah, uh, which actually with Universal DH around the corner, yeah, you know, there's a little I, more I, on the bone there playing time. I'm, I'm all in. I, I I think I would expect him to have like a 44 percent ground ball rate next year, and like a seven percent barrel rate, and like uh you know uh, something like what would be like 22, 24 homers over the full season. Yeah, that would play just fine. Plenty of run production there, too. And getting on base as much as he does could be a little higher in the order than the typical catcher. So a couple up arrows, I think, on Tyler Stevenson yeah. after what he's done here uh, in 2021. Uh, we have another catcher joining the pool because he was a big part of that trade that sent Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to the Dodgers. That, of course, is Kiebert Ruiz, who uh, is up for the Nationals now. I don't see Riley Adams as a big threat to his playing time. So I think we can pretty safely say that Ruiz should have a path to probably start a hundred games for the Nats next year, maybe a bit more. And I've always been impressed by him in the minors because the, the K rates have been low. He's been young for the level everywhere he's played. What should we expect though, from a, a power perspective, because the, the power we've seen from him in triple a this season is another level above everything he's shown us to this point, 21 homers over 72 triple a games. Uh, in the Dodgers organization and the Nats organization this season for Ruiz. Yeah, he has the ability right now. He, I think he must have gone undergone a swing change in the lost 2020 season um, because he used to hit 45% of his balls on the ground uh, up until 2019. In 2019 at AAA, he hit 49% on the ground. It's a small sample, but... That same year in a bigger sample in double a 44 and then he goes uh 2020 uh there's just the eight uh, play appearances never mind that but 2021 50 fly balls in triple a bananas 
And he continued that for Washington. Dude, this is a, a very rare skill set. I, I need to do this real quick. Um, <laughs> I, I, I know I, I should have done this before the show. I'm sorry. But um, I'm now going to look at... We've been... I think we've had like good ground ball rates, uh, you know, mostly this century. So I'm going to use ground ball rate. I'm going to use fly ball rate, and I'm going to I'm going to look at fly ball rate, and I'm going to look at the uh, top guys in fly ball rate and put the strikeout percentage on this because uh, Kbert is pro- um, is projected to strike out twelve percent of the time. That's a really low strikeout rate for any player, it's really but low. especially for but, an actual catcher. But then nobody does that, and then, oh, Barry Bonds does. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm going to look for anybody who has below a 15% strikeout rate, um, and uh, I'm going to start at the top of the fly ball list. So Frank Thomas, right? That's that's a little bit more normal. You know, 55% fly ball rate, 17% strikeout rate, Like, he, and he was really good. What I was thinking of was Rod Barajas, you know, 54% fly ball rate, 17% strikeout rate, terrible BABIPs, terrible batting averages. That's that's what I think of, of the guys who hit 50% fly balls. And there's other guys like him. Marcus Thames is on here, Greg Vaughn, Reese Hoskins, Johnny Gomes, Joey Gallo. Those are the normal guys. Okay, here we go. Our first one, sub-15, Darren Fletcher. He was a catcher too, wasn't he? Yeah, I barely, barely remember Darren Fletcher. God. A catcher for the Blue Jays, yeah, catcher for the Blue Jays, uh, and and the Expos. I might have put a Darren Fletcher in my bike spokes, which I was not a <laughs> ruin my baseball cards kind of guy. Joe but, Creedy, hmm. but these all, by the way, all these guys have low babbits. Yeah, but I also think that the higher contact rate hitters of that era are just those are just different players. They were they weren't they were they weren't trying to do damage quite the same way or at least they weren't capable of doing damage the same way as hitters now with this approach here's here's a name that you might like barry bonds um yeah you don't think they were capable of 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 what of a lot of those guys i don't think were necessarily capable of of big power joe creedy is probably a better player than people remember though he's a better player than i remember at least he had a couple of 20 home run seasons in there you had 30 in there too Look at these Babips they're projecting uh, Ruiz for, though. Uh, that might have something to do with the fly ball rate. They're projecting him for 260 to 280 Babips. I mean, Creedy as a as a comp, just for a heads up, I think he was 15% or lower with the K rate every year from 03 to 08. His Babip topped out at 271 and bottomed out at 229. So when you hit the ball in the air that much in the big leagues, guys usually go catch it. And what was the uh, what was his batting average like? It was bad, right? He was 261, 239, 252, 283, 216, and 248. Well, uh, there is that volatility that I've talked about with Aaron Hill, you know, and Jose Bautista. I've talked about this a little bit. There's a little bit of volatility, I think, when you're a 50% fly ball guy. It's not something I look for and usually like, but you combine it with a 12% strikeout rate, which I love. Uh, It's an interesting combo that uh, there haven't been a lot of players like him. He's a little more pull-happy with the added power, but not extreme to the point where you're worried about that. I mean, he's a catcher. He doesn't run well, so some of the minor league BABIPs are, are a little bit of an outliers because defensive quality there versus what he's going to be hitting into in the big leagues is different. Uh, yeah, so I, I, I don't know. Like, I'm probably... 
I'm probably over the bat projection for him on the average. Like I, I get 269 where it comes from, but I wouldn't be surprised if long term he's like a 280, 285 guy for a couple of years at his peak with legit like 25 home run power. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's tantalizing. I mean, it's 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 uh, it, yeah. The, as much as uh, the stuff plus and location plus does not like Josiah Gray, um, Ruiz I think was maybe the big uh, the big get here. Yeah, they certainly needed the long-term catcher upgrade in the organization, too. I'm trying to see if we can get... Can't really get any... He's only got two batted balls this year. So, (laughs) not really going to get much from that. Seven batted balls in uh, parts of two seasons. I don't even know if we can... 30% barrel rate. Bye, bye, bye. (laughs) Yeah, he's just going to barrel. He's going to barrel everything. But, I mean, would you agree that the ceiling is that of a top five catcher? the you know likely outcome is at least a top 15 sort of catcher probably better ceiling than tyler stevenson that we were just talking about i mean honestly yeah i think that's fair i think most of the time that they were prospects that would have been probably the way people had them stacked up as well mm-hmm. that, that's not a cut on stevenson that's more praise for ruiz by the way so mm-hmm. i think these are two guys that we we definitely both like but uh exciting times for, for the nats to at least bring him up there was no reason to wait he clearly has nothing left to prove in the minors at this stage. Uh, let's talk about some late season decision making. You know, we are trying to chase down some titles. I think you're having a slightly better season than me because by your count, you think you're going to win maybe three leagues this year. If I'm lucky, I could win three. I'm more likely to only win one or two with a bunch of finishes right around in the cash. So it's been an okay, not great year for me, but I think people struggle a lot with late season decision making. You know, what are you, what are you turning for league? The league that I'm probably most likely to win of all of them, and it's a four-team race, so it could certainly be one I don't win. I was struggling just to actually sit down a guy like Eloy Jimenez, who only has two games for the first part of the week, to play a much less talented player. Like I know it's the kind of thing we talk about all the time, but when the season's on the line, sitting the better player somehow becomes more difficult. I don't know if you had that experience too, but I am struggling in a big way to make those types of calls right now. Yeah, to some extent, um, I'm trying to lobotomize myself a little bit and just use the Razzball uh, hitter stream streamer stuff sometimes um, just to kind of be like, it's also kind of hard sometimes to compare like, okay, what do I got five uh, games of you know, a top 15 type bat, you know, or seven games of a lesser bat, you know, which one should I put in? Uh, those, those are really hard decisions to just kind of guess at, you know? Uh, so I do like using the, the, the streaming tools that are available to me. Um, and then, uh, you know, the truth is that like, uh, streaks don't really exist, you know? We want Unless them to, but they don't. They, yeah, we. I mean, we talk about adjustments here, and you know, adjustments I guess exist, and and people can find a new talent level, uh, but it's probably rarer than we'd like to admit. And um, you know, in terms of uh, hot streaks, I think you know, for pitching, there's been some some stuff, but I, you know, I don't even think that's actually a hot streak. You know, there's been some proof that like if your fastball velocity is up. Uh, that can be predictive of of better results in your in your next outing, 
well, that's not really a streak. You've actually changed as a as a player. Like your true talent has changed. That's not a streak. A streak is, you know, the same person doing the same thing over and over again. And for some reason, uh, it turning out the same, but or turning out different, like turning out good for a while. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's semantics or something. But in any case, um, uh, you know, I, the only way that a cold streak is actual is a real thing is if they're hurt. So I guess I would like look through the kind of rotor wire or rotor world um, things. And sometimes um, it's not like an IL stint. Sometimes you, you look through it and I've noticed this. I, I talked to Carlos Correa about this. Sometimes it's the little notes where they just miss one game or something. And those are actually super meaningful. I was like, just thinking about uh, Tim Anderson as an example. Yeah. Yeah. I want, I want to see how his numbers look in these last like 10 days or so since this, this injury has been well, it's popped up on him a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I benched Tim Anderson in one league. I think he also has like five games this week. And I was like, if he has five games and he misses one of those, like I'm, or six, maybe he's a six and he misses one, then he's five. And I was like, and he's got the sore legs. Uh, but yeah, that was, that's what happened with Carlos Correa. I was like, I, I looked through his game log and I was like, oh, it just says here that you kind of stumbled on your ankle uh, rounding the bases and missed a game. Um, and you said that caused a downturn in exit velocity for a month. And he was like, yeah, yeah, that ankle hurt. Um, so I guess if you're like trying to look at a player that's that you, you, you think you should play or whatever, look at their injury history for the last couple of weeks and just look through the, all the notes and be like, Oh, he jammed his shoulder diving back to the bag. Wow, that's weird. I didn't remember that. Yeah. Are you looking at something like the Savant, you know, ex-WOBA rolling charts or any, anything in particular that people can pull up and, and just visualize to sort of line up a player's recent performance against some of that news? Because with Anderson, his past 50 plate appearances are below what we've expected. Like it does sort of sync up to say, hey, yeah, this actually is a, a problem for him that is probably pushing him down to like 60 or 70% of his projection. So when you consider the increased possibility of missed time and the two days off, right? If you have this nagging injury, you have a day off Monday, you have a day off Thursday, you have a two game series with the pirates in between. You can probably win those two games without Anderson. The white Sox incentive to sit him is much greater than it is to play him in those mm, matchups. They can give him that rest. An interesting thing too. Yeah. And then he falls into like a three game week. If he's feeling good by Friday or because they didn't play him Tuesday or Wednesday, they could retro that IL stint if he needs it, get him back sooner later on this month. I, I feel like they're going to err clearly on the side of caution with him, and I think it is supported by that recent performance dip. Yeah, that's interesting. Let's see here. Oh, I've got average exit velocity. I'm going to go into it uh, by game. I used to do that. Uh See, game is very noisy. I had a rolling... When I did uh, did look for these sort of things, I did a rolling 50-ball-in-play exit velocity, right? So it smoothed it out a little bit, but you still got to see some trends. And I don't think that exit velocity, average exit velocity is not very good for predicting future uh, success. But what I do think it is, it's a little bit like fastball velocity, right? Doesn't it map pretty close where it's like, that's that's it describes your upside. It, it, it tells you something about how healthy the guy is. Um, so un unfortunately, uh, game by game, singles numbers is not really useful. I'm going to do by month, uh, 
it's down against I don't really want it by pitch group I want it all pitches so it's steady I guess in August but I would want a little bit more granular than just the whole month right yeah I, I think the whole month is not enough because geez August the beginning of August the stock off was happening things were, were going great for Tim Anderson earlier this month yeah, and he, in terms of uh, monthly, like he is down off his May and June peaks, but um, I would want something a little better than this. I, I think a, you know, I think it would be nice if somebody had a rolling sort of 50 ball and play type uh, exit velocity thing just to kind of line it up because you can sometimes annotate and be like, oh, look, uh, he jammed his shoulder into the base here and then exit velocity went down for like two weeks. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so I, you could I'm do just, that really nicely with Soto season. Oh, I, I think it would it would line up very well there because it just it that one is so clear and obvious that it, it's the it's a good just example, but it's these these smaller non IL situations I think that can can really throw us. And I think that Correa example that you've mentioned is such a good it's such a good reminder that just because an injury doesn't actually put a guy on the IL doesn't mean it doesn't impact them for a few weeks yeah. or a month or even an entire half. I mean, I, I keep wondering about that with Xander Bogarts and a few players that have been hobbled for a pretty long window this year. Uh, so anyway, I, I just thought this was interesting because I, I've been kicking myself with some of these tough decisions uh, over the last few lineup periods in particular. You don't want to make mistakes, but like every decision carries equal weight. It just feels like they carry equal or greater weight uh, this time of year. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We had a question come in about John Means and location strategy, which is another recurring topic on the show. And this comes from Trevor. Trevor writes, in watching John Means this year, it seems like he tends to give up hard contact on four seamers at the top of the zone in two strike, in two strike counts that he doesn't quite elevate enough above the zone to induce chases and whiffs. Does your research indicate the same? And if so, is there anything about the shape of his fastball that should caution against that strategy for him? And related, how much say do pitchers have if a team prefers a certain location strategy for them? I'm trying to decide if the Orioles coaching might hinder Means' future ceiling in making keeper decisions. So uh, first part of that question, are you seeing what Trevor is actually witnessing with John Means? Yeah, I took a look at the Fangraphs heat, cha heat charts uh, for his fastball this year, and he's giving up basically like a 200 ISO at the top of the zone. Um, and even one ball, like even that first sliver above the zone, he's giving up a lot of power, uh, a lot of power. So I think 
I think maybe he needs to like go, you know, another sliver beyond, you know, he needs, he needs to go from like a right above the zone to like above the zone. Uh, but generally also when I look at this heat map, um, he also gives up a fair amount of contact, hard contact at the bottom of the zone. Um, and, uh, I think that, um, some part of it is just his ballpark. Um, and then his fastball by stuff is about average. Um, so it's like an averages pitch in a really tough park. The location plus on the pitch is 99.7. So basically an average fastball, uh, in a really tough park. Uh, and, and so that part I think is a little bit less interesting than the other part of the question, um, which I, I think it is a fascinating sort of look into this. Uh, there's a, there's a person, um, Michael Fisher, who runs a place called Codify and Codify gives you basically like a, a GG plot, like a, like a heat map of, uh, how the batter does against certain pitch types. And uh, it's been normalized for your pitch types, right? So if you've got a rising four-seamer, you get a different heat map for your four-seam than if you have uh, maybe a power, a straighter one, or more of a, a two-seam type uh, you know, movement on that four-seam. So, so somewhat normalized for pitch type movement, uh, and then it tells you uh, the best locations for this hitter in sort of a heat map. Most teams have that. Um, and behind the scenes, I've heard, uh, grumbling from teams being like, like, why, why, why are they paying this guy? We got, we have that, you know, like use our stuff, please. Um, but, uh, uh, other teams are said, whatever makes them feel confident, you know, the confidence is, is actually just as important as the getting the, the location exactly right. Uh, so they're okay with it. Uh, but. The last part that I want to add here is we're doing the validation for stuff plus and pitching plus and location plus. And uh, we have this really interesting findings keep coming out uh, of this. And one of them was that um, on the uh, on the per pitch level, location is more important than stuff for outcomes. Right. So getting we've heard this before from sli well, about sliders that location might be important than, more important than slider stuff but in fact it's true for all pitches that hitting the right spot is more important uh, for that pitch than how, how the shape that it used to get there however stuff is stickier year to year and part of that i think is what's at root here and the question is your pitching coach changes from year to year your organization might change from year to year. And then you have these sort of micro health problems that we were just talking about with the, with the, uh, with the hitters that may not change your velocity, but change your ability to hit the spot that you want. Right. Um, and so basically the reason why we bet on stuff is because stuff is stickier year to year. Stuff is kind of, uh, and, and I just got a DM uh, from Max saying that stuff uh, predicts ERA better than location. So there's something about stuff that's like a straight rod, and then the person, the 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 chaos around it is health and location. You know what I mean? And yes, for one pitch, if you can hit that, if you can hit that little bit, you know, that little inside top of the inside corner of the strike zone uh, at the nipples, you know, like right there, then you're golden. There's almost no hitter that's going to do much with that, 
right? If you could do that over and over again, you could probably just do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but I mean, like Jake McGee exists. Um, but but that doesn't mean that location is a better thing to bet on overall. Um, so anyway, uh, long story short, John Means has good stuff. Uh, he has a really bad ballpark uh, that's hot right now. It's at its worst that it ever is. And I can't say that his pitching coach is bad, but he could have better and worse years depending on how that location works out around his stuff. And so much of the John Means future, I think, hinges on just getting out of the ballpark regardless of the quality of the coaching that he's getting there. I keep seeing so many similarities between him and where Matthew Boyd's stock was a few years ago. The Tigers never seemed to get what they wanted for Boyd, so they held on to him. Probably a longer-term sort of mistake, regardless of what you think of Boyd, because they could have probably got some good young talent back a couple of years ago. I don't think the Orioles are going to make that same mistake. We've talked about them a lot lately, just as a, a rebuilding team that might see through the rebuild and end up in the 80-win range anyway. They they might not be able to to crack the top of the AL East. If they're going to get there, it's going to take a few more decisions to trade some guys, means being among them, and acing those trades too. That's going to be really important for the future in Baltimore to make sure the couple of guys they have with control left who will bring them back more talent actually do move and actually bring back the impact guys they need. Yeah. I don't know, man. I just feel like I think these things come together kind of quickly. I, I think that you could look at the Padres after that first uh, uh, t- that first. Remember that had that first burst of movement when he first got there. Preller first got there, and then uh, they sold everyone away. Do you think that like they looked like they were in a good good space? I don't think that first group of, of player acquisitions i think you're referring to like the with the matt kemp kimbrel, justin yeah. upton kimbrel padres yeah i i don't think they look good but i'm saying once those guys all left do you think that like the padres were in good shape yeah because they still had a system that people were believing in at the time right they were already laying that sort of well, ground aren't work. the Orioles systems getting good ratings right now Depends on who you ask. Um, I know Baseball America is really high on them, but I don't think that's necessarily a consensus opinion, even though I think everyone agrees Adley Rutschman is a long-term, like decade-long impact player behind the plate. Grayson Rodriguez is one of the best pitching prospects in the minors. That's what I'm saying. Like, Like, what if Grayson Rodriguez turns out to be better than Means? Now you've got like someone who's better than Means. You got Means. Maybe DL Hall is slightly worse than Means. Okay, now you got three legitimate major league pitchers on top of that, and then you start looking at the at the the group of position players they've got. You don't have the star yet, but I think that stars are really hard to like. If you look at uh, at what people like, I, I did this for the Cashman piece with with Mark Carrig. We looked at who has drafted the major leaguers that are in baseball today. And the, t- the top three teams were the Cardinals, the Rangers, and the Yankees. Now, the Yankees have developed a star. But the Cardinals and Rangers both have had a really hard time developing a star. You know, they've packaged together all their normal guys to try and get, get stars. But they none of them have made a star. So, like, creating a star, I think, is somewhat lucky. It's kind of interesting because this circles back a little bit to something we were talking about on Friday and watchability and you know whether or not the Rays play some sort of brand of baseball that's less enjoyable than others. And um, you know, I, I took my position that it's the same kind of baseball everybody else is playing. And <laughs> for a star, though, like it, it, there's a little bit of a, a beauty in the eye of the beholder sort of thing. And it's kind of like developing an ace. 
it kind of depends on how you define a star and how you define an ace, right? Like wherever you want to draw those cutoffs. But the reality is both of those things, as they are most commonly defined, aces and stars are more rare than we want to believe. There yeah. aren't enough aces and stars to go around for every team to have multiples because if they were if they were that common, they wouldn't be aces and stars. They'd, they'd just be very good players instead. So I, I just think this is one of these like, problems, air quotes, problems that we kind of put on ourselves collectively expecting there to be more elite players than there actually can be. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And so th- I use that point to say, that I think the Orioles could be good soon because they're developing guys. You know, like Ryan Mountcastle, not a star, but a major leaguer, you know? And they're going to keep finding these guys. Uh, Santander in a regular season, a guy. Cedric Mullins might not be the kind of star-esque player he is this year, but he'll go back to being a guy. And that's all you can do is just make sure you have a guy everywhere. You know? Uh, And then try to improve upon those i mean that's what the that's what the 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 giants did right they're like oh god like we like we we have like five guys and we you need like 30 to 40 to have a good season and all that uh all that their general manager did was to try and improve the bottom of the roster over and over again and now they have one of the best triple a lineups in baseball yeah and in terms of position players only posey and crawford have been North of two and a half wins based on on fan and you wouldn't call, Yeah, I think the Giants are a great example of this. You wouldn't call Crawford a star. I don't think you call Belt a star. Posey is a star, but Rutschman could be a star on the same sort of Posey level. Doesn't so. doesn't this kind of get back to almost a fantasy argument too? But in, in in real life, you can you can win the World Series with two aces and just kind of three decent guys in the back of the rotation if your decent back-end guys don't get blown up in the postseason and your aces do ace things. But you can also win with a bunch of threes if your threes are just consistently good and your offense shows and up. Like There's, there's so many ways is, to win. Fantasy, for the most part, is is more like regular season ball. You're more likely to, to win being sort of Billy Bean, right? Where you're just like, get the undervalued guys, make sure you don't have any holes. That's That's been my that's been sort of my process is buy innings pitched, buy plate appearances, make sure you... You you accrue the most counting stats. Just make sure you don't have any holes. Make sure you 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 account for everything, and um, you don't always need to have like that breakout star uh, to 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 compete and to win. Uh, it's not quite like postseason ball where I think the stars matter a little bit more. Right, and that style you described—that's more the Ariel Cohen, Jeff Zimmerman, Larry mm-hmm. Schechter style of play. Whereas I take the hair on fire, let's just build the stars and scrubs, let's hit on those scrubs and, and build the super team, and it works sometimes, but those guys win more than I do. So, yeah. clearly like, I am... I, I gotta, it is fun, though. Your your way can be more fun. <laughs> I do have uh, a lot of fun. I, I don't know how much fun those guys are having. I think when they win, they're having plenty of fun. I think when they oh, fall yeah, just short, but, they're not having as much fun. But, yeah, but it's also like building... Um, building on the back of like Adam Engel and, and Kevin Kiermeyer and like you know like uh, just uh, just guys that will play. It's a little bit less fun than being like, but I had Wander Franco in his first breakout year. You know, and, I mean the the smartest possible way to do it is to build the balanced approach, then just take the right shots cheap with your bench and and get still get the scrubs right, but then just don't overpay for stars. Like that's 
that's the answer. To go. It's like eighty yeah. percent what those guys do, or ninety percent what those guys do, and like ten to twenty percent what I've been doing. So, if I can find the common ground between those two approaches, then I think I can have even more sustained success and be a pain in those guys' butts collectively uh, in the years ahead. Try to try to reel off a stretch where I win a bunch of leagues against them because they're they're all great players, and I think that's a huge part of why they have the success that they do. Uh, one more question to get to, one more topic to get to, rather. It's both, actually, because it's Beer of the Month making its triumphant return after, geez, a two- to three-month layoff. How how has Beer of the Month gone by the wayside? It was Beer of the Week when the show started, and now it's like Beer of the Quarter, Beer of the Semester. Like I, <laughs> It's coming back as part of field trips and, and West Coast DVR. Beer of the Month is making a triumphant return. Maybe it'll be Some like stuff is a little bit easier in the off season when there's less stuff going on. Also that. Uh, so, <laughs> but beer of the month was a, a question from Michael because it came with a recommendation as well. And his question was about Seth beer because back in 2015 and Michael lives in Atlanta, Seth beer was a really big deal in that area as a high schooler and, you know, mashed on the mashed as a hitter pitched really well in high school, graduated early, went to Clemson, was college baseball's player of the year as a freshman, and now he's stuck behind Christian Walker in Arizona. So what's the deal with Seth Beer, first and foremost? Is he worth a $1 stash in auto new and other deep leagues sort of looking ahead to next season and, and how maybe Arizona will open up a spot for him and, and see what he can do with a, a large amount of playing time? I thought there was a baseball player. Yes, there he is. Brett Pill. Oh, I no. Pills. I thought just, it was pills. I thought it was pills. Brett Pill. put an S on there. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to go to Joey Pancake. <laughs> Joey Pancake. Um, no, Seth Beer, uh, I think he has a chance. Uh, you know, Christian Walker's taking a big step back. Um, and uh, Beer combines good strikeout rates with uh, excellent power. Uh, he's done it all the way up to AAA. I, I think he's running out of... Out of uh, uh, out of reasons not to have him in the big leagues. So I would actually expect him to get a fair amount of, of play appearances next year. I don't know if he'll be up right in the beginning of the season because the team seems kind of bad. But, um, you know, if they play a little better than usual, see him in May. They really, really should not wait on him. And this is not the the service time thing. It's a he'll be 25 he's years 20, old. Yeah. Let him play. Like just play yeah. him. Don't make him wait until he's 32 to become a free agent. Don't be clowns about this. And how much how much do you care about like making sure you have his 32-year-old season? He may be one of these guys that doesn't necessarily have a super long career. I mean, right. if it, he's a first baseman. Might still be a big leaguer at the end of that time, but probably won't be a guy that you're even worried about keeping on your roster if all the rules are still the same as they are now and he's a 10 million dollar player. I, you know, this DH thing could be very interesting for Beer, actually. It could be. His projection is actually be. pretty similar to Christian Walker's already, for what it's worth. Right. And I think the one thing that the Diamondbacks don't want to do is lose uh, Christian Walker if he's an actual uh, asset. You know what I mean? That's what teams don't really like. They really don't want to release a guy that might still be good. You know? So, uh, but if there's that extra roster spot and there's a place that uh, that he can play... Uh, then I think uh, you start the season with both Walker and Beer playing every day. And if Walker doesn't get it back, 
then then you release him when you get a, a roster crunch when you're a better team, right? Yeah, I think with Walker and Beer, they can coexist in a universal DH situation. And that probably makes a lot of sense. Walker will be arbitration eligible for the first time this winter. So it's not like price is a, a major deterrent. So if they see him as a, a rebound candidate for next year, someone that's going to come back and maybe pop in their 20 or 25 homers again, great. Keep him around for another year and see what happens. It's not the end of the world. If it doesn't work out, you can just play him a little bit less. I think he's probably better than he's been so far this year. I actually think but a I, Christian Walker rebound makes a little bit of sense. But I think also, like, if there is no DH, uh, I, I do get your argument about just play beer. But I, I think if there's no DH, um, they'll want to start the season with Walker playing every day to see if maybe it was just a one-year blip. But they will maybe only give him. Like, if he starts next season hitting like he is right now, uh, then he would be a release candidate. I'm going to go ahead and put Seth Beer on my uh, draft champions league, like, yeah, bottom of the list good, range for sure. Yeah, he's a good draft champions pickup. It's going to be there. And for what it's worth, he was playing in the outfield prior to this season. He has not played a single inning in the outfield at Reno this year. So they do not see Seth Beer as an outfielder. Yeah. They see <laughs> they Seth Beer as a first baseman <laughs> yeah. and as a DH. So uh, keep Keep note of that. Uh, there actually is a uh, beer recommendation here in this email. Let me grab that real quick. It's a beer of the week from Michael. Michael says it's a New England IPA called Zero Zero from Arches Brewing in Hapeville, Georgia. Hapeville, not on many people's top five places to visit around Atlanta, but it's a growing community. And if you're flying in and out of Atlanta's main airport, it's a quick stop before your flight. The brewery does crisp, clean lagers and ales with a heavy focus on the water to brew high quality everything. Highly recommended. I have not had anything from from Arches. I also don't yeah, know the either. Atlanta area well enough to know like how close. I mean, it sounds like it is pretty close to the airport. Hapeville, uh, Georgia. I don't actually know it that well. Um, let me see here. It sounds like it might be near Stone Mountain. Hmm. Uh, that's where that's where you come in from Hartsfield. Well, I've got a friend that moved to Atlanta recently, so maybe there's a, a beer swap in order at some point. Oh. No, it's not so far as Stone Mountain. Oh, Hayville. It's by College Park. East Point, baby. <laughs> oh, I know where that is. I haven't hung... That's a little bit on the southern part. Uh, for me, it's like I was in Atlanta. I was more like a Decatur, Midtown... Uh, uh, Morningside, Morningside, uh, Lennox, uh, Ansley, Ansley was my, where I grew up, Ansley Park. And then, uh, and then I hung out a lot, uh, down in like Fayetteville and, uh, Zebulon, Georgia. Zebulon. Uh, I've seen that somewhere. Is there a Zebulon in North Carolina too? Griffin. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, there is. There's a, there's a Zebulon, North Carolina. Why are there two Zebulons? I'll figure that out later. The Zebulon in Georgia has like 3,000 people in it, so <laughs> it's, it's surprising that you heard, heard that name before. Well, it says 4,400 as of 2010 in the North Carolina Zebulon. It'd be kind of cool if the two Zebulons played like a high school football game against each other. <laughs> I just once here flew over to each other. I want it to be on the Ocho. <laughs> or just met in Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, they could just meet halfway. Uh, <laughs> If I draw the map, some somewhere in the corner, southeast corner of Tennessee, maybe I don't know. <laughs> no, that 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 was bad geography, but don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I draw the map in my head. I'm like, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You put North Carolina somewhere weird, 
But uh, <laughs> wait a minute, well, I'm gonna check that out while, while you share your beer of the week. <laughs> All right, my beer of the week uh, is Monkey Space Mafia. Mo- Monkey Space Mafia. Monkey Space Mafia. Monkey Space Mafia. Yes, I believe that is. Let me. I got a picture of it here. I'm looking for it. Uh, Monkey Space. Space Monkey Mafia. <laughs> space Monkey Mafia. Not Monkey Space Mafia. Is that in the We Didn't Start the Fire lyrics? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, there, it, it, it's because that would be a reference to something. What is Space Monkey Mafia? A wait a minute. We didn't. Mia? We didn't start the fire. Wikipedia. Uh, 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 uh. Wait. Wait. See. It all comes it? back around. It isn't. We didn't start the fire. Yeah, it, it appears to be. We didn't start the fire lyrics. Oh, yeah, and then there's a guy who made a song called Space Monkey Mafia sampling Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire using that line. So, yeah, wow, good job. I don't, I don't, I don't dig on Billy Joel, so I had, I had no chance of getting that one. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't um, dig on Billy Joel either. I'm just familiar <laughs> with his music, unfortunately. <laughs> unfortunately, thank you, thank you for that. Okay, here come a bunch anyway. of one star reviews for this. I also don't like Bruce Springsteen, so just keep yeah. throwing him in there. No, I'm not. I'm not big on Bruce Springsteen either. But anyway, I, I'm on this beer. It's from Moonraker. Uh, I like Moonraker. They're in Auburn um, and in, in California here. But the point that I wanted to bring up is it's a cold IPA. And uh, for those of you that think hazies are mushy and chewy, <laughs> mushy. Um, uh, this this cold IPA is uh, super crisp. Um, and basically, you uh, treat it a little bit more like a lager. You use some corn uh, in the brewing process. Uh, I think you cold ferment it. Um, as opposed to, uh, you know, it's like kind of lo- you lager it. Uh, so it has some aspects of a lager. It's pretty crisp, but it still has the kind of sweetness and hoppiness. Uh, I would describe it as kind of like a crisp West Coast IPA in a way, uh, which is actually really nice to have, uh, even if you like hazies, because even if you like hazies, you don't want every beer you ever drink ever again to be all hazy. Yeah, they don't all have to be the same. I would say my selection, which comes from Alvarado Street Brewing, which is now accessible to me when I go even to a grocery store, which is actually pretty amazing. It's the Strata, which is a little more of that typical hazy IPA, but uh, I would not describe it as mushy. Like I, I, <laughs> I think it's a little more on the crisp side. Uh, so I, I dig this one quite a bit. I'm going to bring one over your way here in the next little while. I definitely get the mango on it. I like when the write-up has flavors in it that I can't taste because it makes me feel like I can't taste things the way I should. Uh, I'm getting the mango. I'm not getting white grape. Can you really taste white grape unless you're drinking white grape juice? Is that a flavor note that a normal person can pick up? Yeah, some of these things, like they have have must in them. Yeah, must. Okay, sure. So it smells like an old closet? (laughs) Yeah. Or taste yeah, like that. that's like grapes, like dried grape skin or something. So it's like the essence of grape. Sometimes I think of wine when they when they talk about grapes. I think, oh yeah, I guess I get a little bit of a, a kind of a winey thing going on here. Yeah, I guess if they were doing the the brut IPA or something, maybe I could pick up some white grape there. But I couldn't in this one. I thought this was a little more tropical than than white grapes. But uh, as you've said time and time again, you really can't go wrong with Alvarado Street. I don't think I've ever had a beer from them that I didn't enjoy. So. 
I highly recommend this one. Strata's cool. It caught my eye. The art caught my eye because it's got like the old arcade game box. It kind of looks a little like a like a Pac-Man machine maybe on the front of the can. Got to love Pac-Man. So Beer of the Month is back. Hopefully it's beer of the every other week or something along those lines in the near future. Uh, sweet deal right now on subscriptions, by the way. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic and you're uh, not just seething with rage about how we feel about Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen, you can get 50% off at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. 50% off is actually one of the best deals we do throughout the year, so be sure to sign up for that. Get all of Eno's stuff. Get the occasional things I write. The two early fantasy baseball rankings for 2022, yeah, those are about a month away. Those are coming. I'm going to start working on those in the background. I'm already looking forward to that because something is clearly wrong with me, and it's not my taste in music. Some of the uh, validation stuff that I'm talking about with stuff and location will be up on the site tomorrow. I'm going to uh, look at uh, stuff and location and pitching plus numbers for uh, debut, young, young debut, rookie, young pitcher type people. Uh, so I'm gathering all the, that's, that's what everyone always asks for, you know? So I'm giving the people what they want. Awesome. And, uh, on a related positive note, we got more questions we're going to answer in the next few episodes. I know we're probably a few weeks behind on some emails. Thanks to my move. I apologize for that. I'm finally done building furniture and getting the ass on a daily basis, which means I can actually dig further into the emails and catch up on them. So if you send us an email way to get the ass is build furniture a hundred percent, like the stuff we've been ordering, (laughs) you you know, we're not getting fancy furniture. We're getting very basic furniture. Very basic furniture means you're using dowels and those little, uh, those little metal things that hold like the screws that go in, you like turn, you twist them to like lock it in place. They're like little metal. Yeah. They're like pegs with a screw on the end. There's those two, lots of those in my life right now, but uh, Allen wrench, all the Allen wrenches. I have the super Allen wrench here, though. I have the <laughs> Allen wrench. In case you lose the Allen wrench that came with the product, I have like a 12-piece. It's like a That's Swiss like, Army. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a very nice piece to have. So thank you to my father-in-law for sending that my way because the entire world was pretty much built with Allen wrenches, as I've learned. <laughs> when did people decide that? We have screws. We have screws with like two two heads on, right? Like, couldn't we just go with those? I think it's because there are a surprising number of people in this world who do not want have or have tools. Like, they just don't uh, have it. So the tool's got to come in the so box. with an Allen and, wrench, you can give it to them, yeah, without having to give them a whole, a whole tool. Right, cost three cents to tool. send an Allen wrench with the pieces. So just an engineering right. twist for keeping it easy for people that don't want to buy tools and it, hey look i i don't mind using the, the tools you get better stuff when you use actual tools i, I am a tool yeah still same but <laughs> that is going to wrap things up for this episode of rates and barrels we are back with you on wednesday thanks for listening